Welcome to the third season of That's So Second Millennium, the Catholic science podcast where we explore the fascinating borderlands between science and theology through realms of philosophy, human experience, and more. Welcome back to That's So Second Millennium, episode 115. This is the continuation of our interview with Aida Ramos at the University of Dallas. So we'll pick up where we left off in episode 114 with our discussion Aida's layout of the concept of subsidiarity and its history. And then we go on to talk about more topics in economics and Catholic social teaching. We'll discuss, for example, the decline in real wages and the advent of dual incomes in society since the 1970s. And then we'll discuss the concept of distributism, an idea that the term was coined in the early 20th century, and it describes an alternative to large capitalism, as opposed to simply meaning uh, capitalism meaning free markets, and uh, communism and socialism and uh, large-scale engineering of the economy through the state. So without further ado, here's the rest of our interview, hopefully just our first interview, with Dr. Aida Ramos. We were deep in the midst of uh, the, the roots of subsidiarity in things like uh, Roman, the Roman concept of equity and continental law and economics. Right. And actually, it's good we had that little break because then I remember, you know, I mentioned it's mentioned in uh, Quadragesimo Anno, but it's also mentioned in Rerum Novarum. It's just um, it gets more developed in Catholic social thought after Rerum Novarum, after Quadragesimo Anno. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, the, the word subsidium in Latin, it means assistance or help. So that okay. is one yeah. of its basic origins. And, and then the other, oh, I was talking about equity, which is giving to someone what they are due as a member of a community, which, you know, that has a lot of implications for the development of Catholic social thought because it's like, well, who is my community? According to Jesus, it's everybody. So what is it then that's due to members of my community? Um, You know, and we've talked about the common good, but then also there is a responsibility on the part of higher authorities to not interfere in things that are none of their business and that can be solved at a local level. Or, or within the household, um, you know, or like within my classroom, I get to make the decisions about what it is that I teach in this lecture. Um, yeah. You know, it's not, it's not the dean who decides that. Although it would be nice if we had, you know, a requirement that everyone did have to discuss this because I teach at a Catholic school. But so the concept I feel is embedded in the concept of equity and it has to do with rights and responsibilities. So that part, I'm still working on a paper about that. Uh, that got derailed, actually, because I was supposed to go back to Notre Dame and do some research last summer, but because of COVID, oh, yeah, I that didn't finish happen. it. I'm yeah. still working on it, so don't. Um, I'm still testing out those theories, but um, you know, but the Latin term, it's important to to know that and and to know that this wasn't something that like that Pope. Pius the 11th, who I almost forgot about again, is, right. uh, that he didn't just, it's not something that he and the uh, other clergy who helped him to write the encyclical, you know, that's another thing that I think is important to know is that uh, the popes don't just write all of it by themselves. They get clergy yeah. to help them who usually have a background in law and economics. And for Quadragesimo Anno, the uh, German Jesuits who helped in the writing of these texts had a background in um, continental law. Sorry, there's a fly in here. I had opened the door earlier. So if you see something like moving around, that's what's happening. Um, (laughs) I should have never opened that door. Um, Anyway, um, 
So I think it is still tied to this concept of equity that arises in the law, but you can see the clear connection in uh, the, the language of rights and responsibilities in Catholic mm-hmm. social thought. I mean, you could also trace it all the way back to Aristotelian thought, you know, because mm-hmm. the Romans were also influenced by Greek thought. And yeah, um, yeah. 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 so it, it has a lot of different, um, there's a thread of thought that, that runs through Western um, intellectual life that yeah. you can see being applied in Catholic social thought. Yeah. Also, subsidiarity is a good fit with what you said was the origin of the word economics, right? A household yes. kind of um, management. Am yes, I right? Absolutely. So, because that's um, the best, the most basic unit of society, the family, yes. and the like, household. What is my responsibility to my household? So that's also an Aristotelian, it's based on an Aristotelian mode of thinking about, well, my responsibility as the head householder is to make sure everyone, it's about provision, basically, um, and, you know, of course, for Aristotle, as I mentioned before, the focus was on the ultimate goal was the good life. It wasn't to uh, maximize profit. It wasn't yeah, uh, right. maximization of utility. It yeah. wasn't let me defeat all of the other merchants in the marketplace. It was, well, what do I need and what does my family need? What is my household, which was a really expansive concept because it also yeah. included everyone who worked for your household who wasn't part of your family. Yeah. What do they all need to attain the good life? Um, so yeah, there's so much, so many antecedents from Catholic social thought, from our classical, from classical thinking. But, um, the thing you mentioned about, you know, basic economic theory and political economy, the paper I'm still working on, on subsidiarity, I'm trying to, um, tie it more into why Sir James Stewart chose to call political economy, political economy. Is it also connected to ideas about equity and subsidiarity because his training was in the law? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was trained as a lawyer and, and then he started to address all these economic issues. But he had spent a lot of time in Germany where they, as I mentioned, they taught economic things, what yeah. we today call economics as part of the law and history curriculum. They weren't um, separated the way we have them today. Right, right. To our, to our chagrin, as we were saying before we started recording the first time. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. They need to have all those, those perspectives together. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just a fascinating. I mean, there's, there's simply, you know, subsidiarity has that practical, you know, I, for, for various reasons, I think a lot about how, I mean, I mean, in my, in my very concrete, and this goes back to environmental thought. So my concrete experience as a state regulator. So I'm at the state of Indiana. And I'm working for a government department that's, you know, entrusted with making sure that, for example, the groundwater that people, you know, is, is a resource that people need for drinking water in most of the state um, isn't contaminated excessively by gasoline, industrial effluent, all sorts of things. And, and then thinking about the, the experiences that we had with sites that involved the federal agency, the EPA. And just the amount of, I mean, it, there's a really practical level at which it's, it gets difficult when you go up the scale um, to really be effective. And, and you tend to write policies that don't fit. Um, you tend to, I mean, just in terms of ever getting, ever getting jobs done, you tend to, okay. you know, there, there, are, there are things you simply can't account for um, at higher levels. And, and to what right. degree that, you know, that, that practical, that practicality plays into subsidiarity all the intellectual and cultural antecedents, legal antecedents to it. Mm. 
Well, I mean, that's, um, you know, and that is a difficulty of like, you're working with a large group of people who don't have this worldview. Right. <laughs> uh, because, you know, I, I would also say that, um, you know, economic, mainstream economic theory, neoclassical economics, as we call it, would, um, you know, say, well, who cares? What matters is profit maximization and right. utility maximization on the individual level. There are trade-offs that can occur. Yes, some people's water could get polluted, but if they're willing to be compensated for that in some way, then that's fine. And yeah, yeah. any of those then firms can continue to maximize their profit. Yeah. But um, that, that then ignores, of course, what uh, Pope Francis addresses in Fratelli Tutte about what he says, you know... <laughs> Uh, because so many different branches of our human experience have now adopted this economic model of thinking about the world and what we ought to be doing. It's come at such a vast human cost. And yeah. so the difficulties that you encounter, um, you know, working within a bureaucracy, that can be part of that. When, you know, someone is just very focused, say you have a higher up who's just very focused on showing their higher up, look, we've accomplished all these projects, we've checked off all the boxes, but they yeah. haven't put any thought or not enough into, well, how is this really going to affect the day-to-day -day lives of people? Right. Um, right. All of that is really just a symptom of how... <laughs> of our modern, you know, condition, unfortunately, where yeah. a lot of privilege has been put on, well, can I show that I've accumulated all these projects and checked off all these boxes rather yeah. than, well, what's in the boxes? How is it affecting people? Right. Not just the, not just the people who need to drink the water, but also the people who are working on this project, yeah. etc. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the, Pope Paul VI said the world is suffering from a lack of thinking. Yes. <laughs> that's that's, that's, that's yeah. from Populorum Progressio in 1967. Uh, yeah. A lack of yeah. thinking on every level. Yeah. 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 That is the. He was. He said things that just people just weren't ready to hear. Believe it or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little concerned now where uh, our political debate is leaning more toward socialism and uh, big oh, yeah. solutions to everything. That's, mm -hmm. And Which is it seems just to a be, different, it's just yeah. an unthinking denial of the logic of subsidiarity. And the logic of subsidiarity would probably still be amongst us more broadly if we were more family-minded, more uh, household-minded, more you know, just uh, equipped with the logic of balancing one's budget and uh, just doing the kinds of things that get one practically through everyday life. Socialism well, seems like a very practical solution to things because we just throw it to the government and let them handle everything. Well, that, and that's the criticism right? that uh, Catholic social thought has towards um, yeah, more extreme forms of socialism, definitely, that you can, or actually any form of socialism, that you could lose sight of the, um, oh gosh, there's a specific term for it, and now I can't remember. But it's, it's like, uh, the problem is that you lose sight of the actual human person yeah. in doing that. But I do want to say that... Um, 
I mean, I, I don't really think that uh, our political our, our political discussion, a lot of it is around socialism, but that's not actually anything that is on any policymaker's agenda right now, at least in mm-hmm. the United States. I mean, right. definitely in Europe, of course, many countries there are much more socialized than we are here. And um, I mean, I think something that is more a useful way for us to talk about it. And this is what I've told my students too. And, you know, they should also take comparative economic systems so they can actually understand what are the differences because the frustration that people are experiencing right now in the middle class and uh, the lower class is that, yeah, economically right now, things are not working out for the middle class in particular the way they used to. And, um, this is an area I've, I've done a, quite a bit of research in. So, you know, it was in 2015 that for the United States, for the first time, uh, the middle class was not the majority of our income groups. Wow. It mm-hmm. was the uh, people in poverty and then the upper class formed the majority. Wow. That corrected itself again in, I believe it was by 2017, it had corrected itself again. But, um, you know, so when, when young people in particular are expressing frustration with the system, I think it's coming from that. But what's ha- what has helped to cause that is the breakdown of responsibilities between employers and their employees, where up until 1979, 1980, now I wish I had this graph with me right. here to show y'all, there has been a massive split between American workers' productivity, which has continued to increase. That's we work more hours yeah. than before. We're more productive than ever before. But our real incomes, the real purchasing power of our incomes has been flat yeah. yes. for, the average yeah. worker, for the average worker. So not for everyone, for the average worker, looking at all average incomes. Well, um, and, and the average worker as opposed to median worker? Yes. Yeah. So that means so that means that the people who are climbing at the top are you know there's got to be a comp- compensatory you know dropping off at the lower levels. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we have higher poverty rates than we've had before, and uh, but it, there's been a flattening of average worker wages. The real value of the average wage is not as great as it was. It's lower than it was going back to the nineteen. 19- 70s. So, uh, so people actually, they are feeling the pinch because they're, we're working more than we ever have. We're super productive. It's not because people are lazy that their incomes don't go as far. So I, that's, I wanted to say that because it's not about households balancing their budgets. It's that they don't have enough income to survive in the way that the middle class used to in the past. Uh, when you could have a head of household who did it, who's, you know, you could be a husband and your wife didn't have to go out to work. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, that, that, like my, my dad, thinkable. my, you know, my parents had five kids. They had sat down ahead of time and determined how many can we afford? We can afford six. They wanted six. We had five. Um, right. but, you know, my mom uh, then had to do a lot of economics, a lot of household management while he worked. And, but in the 60s, 70s, early, early 80s, that was okay. But for most families, they're not in that position anymore in the middle class and absolutely yeah. not in the lower class. So I think that a lot of the, um, you know, the frustration that, uh, you know, especially young people are feeling that make them move in that direction to say that they want socialism and whatnot is they are having a frustration with the way our system works now. And a problem with our current system is that we have less competition within our individual industries than we've ever had before. 
So capitalism, when it works, it works beautifully, uh, but it works best when there's a lot of competition. Uh, meaning, not meaning competition in the sense that our products don't compete with other countries' products, because of course they do, but um, competition within an industry. Like, look at what's happened with our cell phone industry. You know, mm. T-Mobile just had that merger with Sprint. And now who are the big firm? You can, without even ever having studied oligopoly, you know, that's an oligopolistic right. industry. There are a few firms who control yeah. the vast majority of that industry. Monopolies are illegal here, but oligopolies aren't. But, you know, that's right. why Amazon right now and Google and Facebook are coming under uh, scrutiny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because exactly. we do have antitrust legislation against someone who has monopoly power. But yeah. um, more, I think most Americans aren't aware that the, um, the way our industries operate has changed. They aren't as competitive as before. You could look at the airline industry as well. You know, yeah. when we were even oh, in yeah. grad school, how many more airline options were there to fly out of South Bend or oh, Chicago gosh. Than, there there are, yeah. than there are now? There's probably uh, one yeah. now, right, in South yeah. Bend. American. Mine uh, <laughs> yeah. United also <laughs> United okay. School. But, you know, TWA used to exist. Northwest yeah. Airlines used, used to, to exist. exist. Um, yeah. um, as these firms become more um, concentrated, yeah. that has impacts for labor. It has direct impact for how many people you hire, how many upper managers you have, what happens with salaries. Yeah. And so I just wanted to say that we shouldn't just discount um the unhappiness people feel with the system. But again, I will say that capitalism would, I mean, it worked beautifully for us in the sixties and the seventies um, and so on. But then we had more regulations and we also, we had more competition. We absolutely had more competition in our industries. Yeah. It was yeah. a fairer deal for labor. And yeah. so from a Catholic social thought perspective, that's extremely important. But for, you know, socialism, there isn't anything in uh, either candidate's uh, policy um, platform that says they're going to socialize any part of the economy. So I would say that's not something that's going to happen with, because socialization means the government would own some key resource. Yeah, no we're not going to nationalize that. industries in that way. Right. There's no talk of nationalizing, say, the Methodist healthcare system or the Baptist healthcare system. Or Franciscan um, or what have you. Right. I'm just mentioning some of the big two here in Texas. Well, yeah. And by the way, what has happened to our healthcare systems? More of those have become much more yeah. concentrated than yeah. in the past as well, which has changed, uh, gosh, just because of... Um, Dividends and stockholder compensation, upper management compensation, more of the profits are going to that than going to wages, which yeah. firms are, can do that because the law allows them to do that. And yeah. um, so politics is really important here to try to change the situation uh, so that people just don't get these ideas that, you know, capitalism has never worked, da, da, da. Because that's not true. It's just the conditions we're operating in have changed. And yeah. um Gosh, some firms lobbying Congress to get those changes to happen is part of this, too. Uh, so we come back to law, politics, and economics. It's all of a piece. But um, I was also going to say a better way to talk about this, especially with young people, I think, is to talk about public goods rather than to talk about changing our entire economic system. Public right. goods are those goods that we that are paid for out of our taxes and the government uh, not, I hate to say provides them because it makes it seem like it's for free and nothing is for free, but um, they're produced by the government because they're not profitable for private firms to produce or private firms wouldn't produce enough of them. 
you know, national defense is when I don't pay for my right. own private army. I pay right. my taxes and uh, the government does that. You know, and whether I pay my taxes or not, although I have, uh, right. <laughs> they're going to defend me. You know, they're not just looking at their GIS map of like, well, this house didn't pay their taxes, so we're not going to defend them from an attack. Right. Overseas, you know, that would be practical. Not right. So, so, um, so we have public goods because they increase efficiency and they provide a thing that people need or want. But that wouldn't be provided enough of by private. Like if we did all have our own private armies, it would come down to, well, right. did you pay for it? No, so I'm not going to defend you, et cetera. Right. Or private, um, private roadways for that matter. Private roadways, although we do have toll roads, but our entire interstate system is a public good. The weather service is a public good. NASA is a public good. Although as our technology changes, we get more private provision of these. Our production is a better word of these things, you know, like um, Elon Musk and SpaceX, blah, blah. In the 60s, it wouldn't have been possible due to the massive startup costs and the lack of technology. But now it is possible. Yeah. So some things that were public goods in the past can become private goods in the future. But um, for or vice versa. Or vice versa, uh, exactly. So something that, of course, is talked about a lot is healthcare. But the thing that we're doing here and that is continues to be under discussion in policy is about how we deal with insurance, not how we deal with the health system. There is still no one, um, and you know, neither Biden nor Trump has any plan to have the Dude. government... An NHS, oh, like there was the in the UK, or something. To form an NHS, yeah, that's a simpler way of saying it. Because, like in in the UK, the government, the doctors work for the government. The government owns all the hospitals. No one is proposing that. We're still having a, a really much more basic discussion about insurance, yeah, and how it's going to be paid for, and whether we should have more options. You know, and in Germany, that's how they do it. They have very competitive insurance options. Uh, but the insurance companies there are also not allowed to make a profit. They compete on the basis of revenue. So, you know, there are, there are different ways we could be approaching this that doesn't have to uh, spill over into, are we changing our whole economic system? And uh, I often find that that's where the discussion immediately goes, that it's about socialism versus capitalism. And it's like, well, no, we have a lot of other things we could be doing. And, yeah. and we do already have some public goods. So I think for like healthcare, the question should be, do we want to make this a public good or do we want to continue to keep it as a private good? If we keep it as a private good, what are other things we can do to change the costs? Because that has been the problem for us is the explosion yeah. in costs. Yeah, and, the uncontrolled um, explosion in costs. Yeah. Right. So I, you know, in both candidates, I keep saying candidates, but it's just that, uh, you know, yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> no, no matter who you support, neither one is saying that we need to drastically change the health system. You know, and some people would say, unfortunately, because, you know, there are changes that need to be made. But mostly right. it has to do with costs, bringing down the costs for patients, um, yeah. which right now are just... I mean, ridiculous. We all know that Band-Aids don't cost $100, but when you get that bill, <laughs> right. you see, if you get an oh, yeah. itemized bill from the emergency room or from the hospital, you see a lot of ridiculous costs on there. Uh -huh. um, so, you oh, know, yeah. for, for, um, for President Trump, he had uh, his executive order uh, to the pharmaceutical companies, but nothing has happened with that since he signed it. But that is one thing you could do. Japan does that. They negotiate prices of drugs with pharmaceutical companies. We just mm -hmm. haven't done that. For um, 
for president-elect. I mean, I'm trying to be careful here because, I mean, officially the transition hasn't happened and there are still right. some states that haven't been called as we're recording this. Um, right. on, on Biden's side, I mean, he's still talking more about different insurance options. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I think these are all important things to know because then otherwise you fall into this, um, you know, like fisticuffs between capitalism and socialism when that's not really what people higher up are fighting about. Um, it's just it's a it's like a veil over what is the real thing yeah. and decided yeah. upon. Yeah, we are really good at, at masquerading, at, at masking what the real issues are. And, and not, right, uh, and and it also gives people this false idea, and I think for some, a false hope for people who really want this, that we are going the way of the NHS. We're not going the way of the NHS, not any time yeah, in, I think, my there's, lifetime. There's not the political will to do that. There's no country. political will. There is no financial will to do it because, um, you know, a lot of the hospital systems contribute to campaigns. And, it's just, you know, you can't forget the Citizens United decision that allowed for unlimited private contributions from corporations to candidates. Gosh, then so, there's that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that actually is another thing that has changed the way our capitalist system operates. But that's something that could also be changed to restore yeah. us to uh, the conditions in which the system functioned extremely well. Um, um, but it, and it, it's still, I just don't want people to give up on capitalism, honestly, because under the con right conditions, it worked just fabulously for us for most right. of our modern history. Yeah. 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 There's, yeah, there's, I mean, in, in capitalism in one sense, and then this is, you know, we're getting to the point where this would have to be a future discussion. We didn't mention yeah. distributism at all, but you know, that's oh, right, been sort of right. lurking yeah. in the background when we've been talking about socialism versus capitalism in different senses. Of course, you know, Chesterton or Bellock would have used capitalism in a different sense than we're using. Right. Um, well, you know, and for people who aren't familiar, distributism was an economic theory, is still an economic theory that was developed in the 19th century based on the writings of uh, G.K. Chesterton and Hilaire Belloc, the historian, but also on the teachings of the Catholic Church. It's... Mm -hmm. um, the principle of subsidiarity makes a fairly strong appearance in distributism. Absolutely. Yeah, they, they, were, they were taking their marching orders from Rerum Navarum. Yes. When in, this, in uh, developing distributism, uh, Can you say that again. Was that was, they were taking uh, their marching was orders from kind of the um, the uh, marching orders uh, for uh, Chesterton and Belloc to develop. Sort of, sort of a proto-manifesto for it. The proto-manifesto of that, yes. yeah. Um, absolutely, and I think also that uh, just things that were happening in the United States at the turn of the century when we did institute our antitrust legislation, um, you know, because that was when the economic landscape changed for a lot of Americans again, too, when you had a lot of movement of people to the cities, you had more urbanization occurring, but you also had at the same time uh, until we had antitrust legislation, you know, you had Standard Oil, you had uh, yeah. Carnegie, who was, you know, concentrating a lot of power. And um, so all of it together helped to influence that change or to develop this change in uh, the U.S. and also in the U.K. Um, Henry George is another important figure in the development of the concept of um, distributism, which related to what I was just talking about, stresses the importance of uh, property, but having more property, which would lead to more competition. So it's not about concentration of power in a very few owners. It's about spreading out the ownership of 
the means of production. You know, it's also a reaction to uh, Marxist thought, which was also against the concentration of ownership in a few hands. But the solution there, you know, and the church agrees with that criticism. What it disagrees with Marxism on, of course, is that you need to have a revolution in order Mm -hmm. to change things. (laughs) Um, And and that you have to be completely... um, Oh gosh, that it that it believes in this like constant battle between classes that isn't that different yeah. than what you have in more extreme views of uh, economic theory, where it's like no, all firms are everyone is always in competition with each other to maximize the war of all the against all. Yeah, a war of all against all. You know, I was part of a very interesting conference um, last December. That's how I learned how to use Zoom. It was the first virtual conference <laughs> I had uh, been a part of. And, you know, luckily, because then I was prepared when we all had to go online. But it was a gathering of economists. Uh, the title of it was The Economy of Francesco. And it was try- It was gathering together economists, policymakers, um, students, anyone really who wanted to be part of it, mm-hmm. um, to reflect on the teachings of Catholic social thought. But of Francis's most recent... Um, encyclicals, but he also had what's called an apostolic, different apostolic letters as to how we can all work together in our different areas to change people's the way in which we interact with each other. But uh, Jeffrey Sachs, who is like the top development economist uh, in the world right now, was a part of it, thank goodness, and he is very inspired by Pope Francis's thought. And he was, he's also writing a new introductory economics textbook, which I think will be great, that will incorporate principles of economic, of Catholic social thought. Wow. He made the point that um, the view in mainstream economics and neoclassical economics that we teach every semester about this war of all against all, that it's, it is embedded in Hobbesian thought, and it's not something that just... Um, it, it, it's out of line with the way we used to talk about human nature up to yeah. that. Yeah, and it's, it's that, very different than Aristotle's take on politics and, and human, you know, interaction. Exactly. And that there's, and so therefore this view, because in economics, it, it's, it's treated as this immutable law, that this is how people are. We're always mm-hmm. acting to maximize our own self-satisfaction. Mm-hmm. To the exclusion of everything else. And, um, you know, something I stress in my writing about the Scottish Enlightenment is that the Scots didn't see it that way. They they allowed that self-interest is a huge motivator and it's a big incentivizer. But are using it as a big incentivizer. But that, you know, especially in Stuart, who I mentioned was the one who came up with the term in English of political economy. And I say that because the term existed in French, but it was used differently. Um, is that he stresses that, um, you know, why is it that people engage in economic activity? He uses the Aristotelian idea that, well, what is it natural for humans to do? It's natural for humans to procreate, have children. You want to provide for your children. And, and, and then the circle just keeps expanding outwards. So and it's natural that, for people to congregate together. People like people. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and that's another thing that was an important part of Scottish Enlightenment thinking. Part of uh, Adam Smith's discussion of the division of labor is about the interdependence between different people in society. He was just talking about it in an economic sense, not in the way in which other people had been talking about it. But um, often people, I would say, at least in economics, they stress the division part of it and how you yeah. end up producing more with it, uh, which is important. But 
Also important to Smith was how is economic society hanging together? We are all interdependent on each other. And he stresses actually in The Wealth of Nations that um, he's not, that it's that economic, what he's writing about isn't about someone who is by themselves off in the woods somewhere because that person is not in society. Right. Right, Which, exactly. you know, in, in economics, we do always talk about economic man, the self-interested, maximizing individual, mm. and you don't talk about society um, at a very basic level. And yeah. uh, that Smith would be appalled by that because all of the Enlightenment thinkers were concerned about society. Yeah. And and again, now I've gone far beyond what the original question was, and I don't remember. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, good. That's high At some point, we set off on the question of distributism, but I, I you know, it really is is getting to the point right. where we, we we really will soon need to call a halt to this episode. Okay. But but hopefully, we will in fact have you on again in the near future. Like you well, said, I over the winter, you, we would I love to do that. Use all the time. I um, that, that that the the time issue would not be a problem for me. So <laughs> if we if we have fair, oh no, uh, I I'm, don't I don't know if we have time for this kind of meta question. But you're bringing up about Jeffrey Sachs uh, incorporating uh, Franciscan. Uh, uh, Pope Francis's thought. The Catholic social teaching uh, into. Yeah, and the whole Catholic. So it, 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 the, the meta problem is that uh, we do, it seems, almost have to start from scratch in our thinking about a lot of this. And it's because of what you cited uh, a few moments ago that, uh, you know, to fit everything into the current categories and labels that we have, mm-hmm. we do have to have accounting systems that charge $100 for Band-Aids. And, and to me that, you know, we're, we're increasingly living in a world of absurdities that people based on old fashioned home economics and household economics, it, it, they don't make any sense. Is there, you know, negative interest rates don't make any sense. All of these things. Well, in uh, some conditions right? they actually do. If you need people to be spending more money in the economy, in emergency, oh my gosh. only in extreme emergency situations do they make sense. Oh, I see. Well, I don't even want to go into that. That that would be even (laughs) scarier than my meta thought that we are approaching such an emergency situation. Well, you know, some countries uh, have. Japan was in that situation. They are, right? Yes, they were were trying to keep people to... I mean, compared to us, Japan is not a consumerist society. We are a mad consumerist society. We have not and had this save. problem. Yeah, We're not right? big savers at all in the U.S. Yeah. We, we don't have a problem with spending. So you, you adopt <laughs> that route when you need more people to spend more in the economy and not save as much. But it, yeah. it's something that you would hope to avoid. It's a sign that things are going really wrong. So hopefully, let me find yeah. someone to knock on here. That, that's something I... We have enough fail-safes, I think, in our economy, and we're such big consumers that I don't think that would happen here. Uh, we're a okay. long way from that happening. We're a long way yet from that happening. Okay, well, that's good to hear. That's one of my concerns. But my, even my, my, my basic meta-concern is that we, uh, because we're thinking in these, uh, we're forcing our uh, thinking into certain easy categories uh, that we're losing touch with basic reality, basic truths of common sense, and Catholic social teaching is a very good framework of common sense that we uh, we could reimpose maybe through Jeffrey Sachs's new um, textbook. You know, yeah. and, th- and that was one of his points and something that, you know, his whole career has been in economics. He was at Harvard before he went to Columbia. So he's been very successful. He's it's been not very like successful. Coming, 
he's not coming from the fringes of economics at all. He's very, yeah. much, you know, he has benefited from his knowledge of mainstream economics. But um, that's something that he acknowledged, that we're losing the practical side of this and that it's yeah. for people. And in and um, I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, about going back to basics, because that's why he is now writing this introductory text. That's great. Because you have to go all the way back to the beginning about what are your assumptions about human beings and what they do, because that is yeah. the starting point of economics, you know, every eco 101 that yeah. uh, you teach every semester. Yeah. Um, yeah. The assumptions school, you make at that level then govern why you're solving this fourth degree differential equation and, you know, your exactly, 400 level exactly. class. <laughs> and once you get up to that higher level where you are doing the differential equations, yeah, and especially at the doctoral level, the mathematics become very refined and beautiful. Right. But the assumptions and the outcomes are about ridiculous things. Yeah. In a lot of oh, cases. I love it. Um, because, you know, there are some models yeah. that talk about, well, what, ha what, what about zero prices? Zero prices are a thing that would never happen in any marketplace. So why are we even right. wasting right. any of it? Right. The fact that, but, but I want an equation that won't blow up in that circumstance. <laughs> and that's what it comes down to, that, you know, the methods in economics have changed. And so in the name of making it more scientist, scientific, it's become more uh. scientistic because sometimes uh, you have well models said, that yeah. are great and that are useful. Sometimes uh, you have models that are just an exercise in mathematics to show I did this because I, I can. Because <laughs> yeah. I'm awesome. Because, because I'm awesome. <laughs> and a lot of the, um, you know, and to talk about this in a, in a way that it really hurt our economy, are a lot of the mathematical models that financial investment firms were using oh, yeah. for the market crash, our last big Exactly, recession. right, uh, in 2008, were, yeah. On just a lot of ridiculous assumptions, very elegant math. The math was beautiful, but yeah. it was, wow. you know, these mortgage-backed securities, you can't lose. They're a great investment for everybody. And right. um, the financiers who were selling them to people didn't understand the mathematics. And I mean, but so that's just what well, I the assumptions behind the mathematics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, this can all go horribly wrong. I mean, math yeah. is a beautiful tool to get things right, but it can also be a tool to... It uh, depends completely, yeah, on when yeah. you get the initial assumptions correct, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Absolutely. yeah, yeah. Well, and that's another that's another way in which we could benefit from returning to our our Catholic roots. Uh, uh, instead of making elegance and beauty uh, serve uh, absurd explanations, we need to return to the idea of elegance and beauty yeah. Uh, telling uh, telling the beautiful story of uh, you know Catholic art and Catholic wisdom and uh, you know things that, that we inherently as human beings appreciate than the good Absolutely. of living in community and um, that uh, gosh I had another thought here that for people who aren't Catholic who might be put off by that idea oh, yeah, good point right yeah. It, but yeah, it's important. That's why I wanted to stress that uh, it has its antecedents yes. in Western, in the Western intellectual tradition. And so I Indeed. think that's why the liberal arts are important. It's still important for us to reflect on these things instead of, and for students to learn them instead of, uh, you know, learning only things that will help you get a career. Well, all of these things are also important for you to do well as a human being and in your career. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's That's a phrase right. that occurred to me when you were, were talking right now about um, 
it's it's a quote from Bono, lead singer of U2. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't I didn't mention uh, your your your, uh, your your devotion to U2 at any point. Yeah. and it's correct. But but he's also done a lot of work in development and economics. He did a That's lot right. of work in bringing, um, you know, especially under uh, the George W. Bush administration, bringing uh, bipartisan attention to development issues and to establishing the president's emergency fund for AIDS, tuberculosis, et cetera. That has helped a lot of people in the developing world um, in massive ways. I could talk about that whole yeah, situation on a separate we're, podcast. We're, but anyway, the perfect- as, as a warning, we're gonna lose this meeting in 20 seconds. Okay, uh, don't oh. let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Oh, yes. yes. Yeah, so and it absolutely applies to the mathematical models thing we were talking about, but also to people who, you know, sacrifice sometimes what is for the human good for the sake of expediency. Mm. Yeah. Thanks for listening to this episode of That's So Second Millennium. TSSM's audio producer is Morgan Burkhardt. Our theme music, Igneous Grok, was composed and performed by Vin Marquardt. For my co-host Bill Schmidt, I'm Paul Geesting. Until next time.